Our Father, we are a group of needy men, every one of us. We all have things uh, in our lives, different things, but we all have things that challenge us. We all have things that, uh, that disrupt our lives. We all have things that we wish were not there. We're all walking by faith. Uh, our issues are different, but we've all got the issues. We, we all have issues of adversity, of hardship, of suffering. But those issues which you are sovereign over, they drive us to you. Uh, there is a place called heaven because of what Christ has done through his finished work on the cross. Uh, we have trusted him as our Savior. We, we follow him with our whole hearts. Uh, because of his sacrificial work, uh, he, he died in our place. And when we put our faith in him, we are given eternal life at that moment. Heaven will be a wonderful place. The suffering, the adversity, the hardship, the difficulties will be all gone. But we're not there. We're on this earth, and we are pilgrims passing through. Sometimes we get uh, waylaid. Sometimes we get uh, conned into thinking that, uh, that uh, it, it's all right here. That... Uh, that really, th this is the life, and we got to do whatever we can do to get as much as we can grab. But that's a lie of the enemy. We want to be your men and your followers, and that's why we're here tonight. We need your wisdom. We are inundated with the wisdom of the world, which uh, the wisdom of the world is, is foolishness uh, when it leaves you out, and it leaves you out. But your wisdom is Jesus Christ and his word, so we are here tonight to look into your word. Uh, we are in a, a world that is troubled, that is broken, that uh, at times we wonder how it holds together. But in actuality, uh, Lord Jesus, you hold all things together because you have a purpose and a plan. We look back over history you own history, you own the future, you own our lives. You're taking this somewhere, and it's going to be wonderful. In the interim, we walk with you and trust you and look into your word. So tonight, I pray that you'll encourage us. I pray that you'll give us hope. We have guys in here with broken hearts. I pray that you will repair and heal and come alongside and encourage and assure them of your love and your favor. You are near to the brokenhearted, and you save those who are crushed in spirit. Our trust is in you alone. Thank you for your faithfulness today. You've gotten us through this far today, and you'll finish out today. And then we'll go to sleep, and we'll get up in the morning, and your mercies will be new. There'll be a FedEx truck of new mercies tomorrow. That's just what you do. So encourage us tonight. Give us perspective on the world in which we live so that we can live wisely. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
So tonight we're continuing our study on landmines. Our, uh, our key verse has been Ephesians 5.15. I'd ask you to turn there tonight again. It's uh, sort of our uh, home base, Ephesians 5.15. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise making the most of your time because the days are evil. I think um, every generation, if you talk to the older people in that generation, they long for the good old days because they look around and they can't believe the evil. Uh, I think that's pretty normal. I've mentioned this before, that in 1959, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who, if you're here in this study, I often quote, pastor of Westminster Chapel in London. In 1959, Martin Lloyd-Jones said to his congregation in London, he said, we are living in days of exceptional evil. Well, he was born at the end of the 1800s. Compared to what he grew up with, and what was happening in 59, 59. Now, to us, a lot of us, 59, those are the good old days. That's when Christianity ruled and reigned, not to him. It's all a matter of perspective. I, I think a case could be made that we are living in days of exceptional evil. Um, we're very similar to the book of Judges, where in the book of Judges, you see this downward spiral through the history of the nation. And you see this phrase, every man did what was right in his own eyes. That's where we are. We've been talking about landmines. Um, if you were in the military, if you were ever on patrol, if you were ever walking the point, uh, your, uh, your leadership to the men following you was critical. You had to be alert. You had to be on the, uh, aware of uh, snipers, tripwires. Your senses were alive. Uh, you had to be careful how you would walk. Uh, in the spiritual realm. As men, we are called to lead our homes and our families. We're called to lead the church. We're men who are following Christ. Therefore, be careful how you walk. Why? There are tripwires. There are landmines. This is a battle. Be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. We've all spent enough time in our lives being unwise, all of us. We brought that to the cross and repented and received Christ's forgiveness. But now moving ahead, we want to walk ahead in wisdom. Uh, so we want to be careful, men, making the most of our time because the days are evil. Tonight I want to look at a, a, a landmine um, that at first glimpse may not seem so significant, but here it is. Tonight we want to look at the landmine of moving the ancient boundaries. And you say, what? Yeah, the landmine of moving the ancient boundaries. And to be more specific under that, the boundaries of which are, I speak are the boundaries of gender and of marriage. So I'll give that to you one more time. Tonight we're looking at the landmine of moving the ancient boundaries, specifically the boundaries of gender and marriage. 
In Proverbs 22:28, and I'd ask you if you have a Bible to turn over there with me, we get this uh, perspective on the ancient boundaries, and you see it in other passages of Scripture. But 22:28 says, "Do not move the ancient boundary which your fathers have set." Now, this was speaking of the uh, of their land. When the nations went in, came out of Egypt after 40 years waiting, went into the promised land, uh, a lot of information is given about the land that was given to each of the tribes. And they had borders. You see, historically, borders are important. When people are sane, borders are important. And the Bible says, do not move the ancient boundaries. Uh, if you were to look at Deuteronomy 19.14, and I won't take the time to turn there, but he's talking about the boundaries that were set. Um, you own a house, you got a lot, you got a zero lot line, you got 10 acres, whatever the heck you got, uh, before you could buy that and you went to the title company and all that, you signed off on a survey. Uh, George Washington, before he was president, was a surveyor. Abraham Lincoln spent some time as a surveyor. What, what, what do surveyors do? They look through those deals, and they got this, and they got that, and they set the boundaries. They set the boundaries. So primarily, that phrase is in regard to the boundaries of the land that was given as an inheritance down through the generations. But there are other boundaries that God has set, other than just on land. Uh, God has fixed boundaries on every area of life. In the book of Genesis, there are some boundaries uh, that are for all people in all cultures, in all times, for all time. Uh, technically, they would be called creation ordinances. Uh, a guy named, uh, a man, a great scholar named John Murray at Westminster Seminary, uh, I've got his uh, book on biblical ethics. And it kind of sounds dry and flat, but it's fascinating. It's so relevant to where we are today because he talks about the creation ordinances in Genesis. And, uh, for instance, like work is a creation ordinance. By the way, the world is in absolute rebellion to the creation ordinance of God. Men are to work. Today, we take healthy young men and we pay them not to work. And if you walk into a 7-Eleven at 11 a.m., you'll see them with their coffee and their cigarettes and their M&Ms just trying to wake up. And they should have been up at 5 out working. But you see, they're not. Because we have a system that's in rebellion to the creation ordinance of, of God. You have to understand what we're seeing in our culture. This whole thing that we're looking at is the issue of authority. It goes back to authority, and it goes back to the authority of God. We're living in an age where, there, where atheism is, uh, uh, they have a lot of uh, celebrities, atheism does. They have their golden boys, they have their authors, they have their on the speaking circuit. Uh, the problem with atheists is they know it's not true. They know that he's the living God, from Romans 1, chapter 1, verse 18. Even though they knew him as God, they didn't honor him as God. 
God's inscribed the truth of himself on the heart of every man, woman, and child. And then through creation they observe, but they've suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. The issue with atheists is that if they acknowledge God, if they acknowledge him, then they have to acknowledge someone greater than themselves who made them and who actually sustains them. And you see, if there's someone greater than you, then that means that one who is greater than you has authority over you. And you would actually have to obey that person. It's an issue of authority. I want to look at two fixed boundaries tonight. Uh, there are a bunch of creation ordinances. Work is a creation ordinance. Having children is a creation ordinance. Um, taking a day off is a creation ordinance. The Sabbath. Now, it doesn't matter which day you take off now. In the Old Testament, it was Saturday. In the New Testament, it was Sunday. Uh, but, it, uh, but still, there's a Sabbath principle that remains for God's people. You can't go 24-7. And so, you know... Um, it's good to take a day off. We all struggle with that, but that's in the Scripture. Uh, I don't want to get off on that, but I want to give you two fundamental creation ordinances that are two boundaries. Two boundaries tonight we're going to look at. Turn with me to Genesis 127. And as you turn into 127... I'm not a big follower of women's golf. Uh, I'm not a follower of women's golf at all. All I know is there are women who play golf on a pro circuit. Uh, but this week, I was reading about a young uh, professional golfer, a young lady named Lexi Thompson. Never heard of her in my life. Um, in summary, here's what I read. Uh, Lexi Thompson had no idea why LP, LPGA Tour rules official Sue Witters, kind of a complicated sentence, was approaching her on the way to the 13th tee during the final round at last Sunday's tournament. Final round, okay? When she found out, she couldn't believe it. The television viewer's email had alerted officials to a day-old rules violation by Thompson for a one-inch ball placement error. Her three-shot lead had just been wiped out by a four-shot penalty. It, uh, now, now, she's ahead. It's the last day. She's on the 13th hole. She's focused, and this official walks up and said, uh, uh, a viewer on TV emailed us that you had, by an inch, violated a rule. Now, now, now you see, in golf, you don't move the ancient boundaries. There are rules. There are rules in most areas of life. You can't function without rules. You just can't do it. There are rules. But um, that was kind of stunning. Now, and there's been some debate over whether a viewer on TV should be able to email and then 24 hours it be changed and all that. Uh, yeah. But let's say this, in golf, you don't move the ancient boundaries. As I thought about this and I read that, one of the things that crossed my mind, I wonder if whoever wrote that email about the one-inch placement of the ball, when the Supreme Court ruled on same-sex marriage, I wonder if they sent any emails. I don't know. 
But I just wonder. I think there's about a 50-50 chance they didn't. You see, in fact, when uh, thousands of years of marriage law and common sense ordained by God was just whisked away by a rational, uh, romantic, emotional foolishness, not based on law, I wonder if they fired off an email. Because you see, that was an ancient boundary that was removed. Let's look at Genesis 127. In Genesis 127, here's the first boundary. It says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is called gender. There are two genders, male and female. Now, if 20 years ago we were in a Bible study, and I'm teaching this, everybody in the room would be saying, of course. Everybody in the culture would be saying, of course. It's like, uh, it's like me saying, uh, water is dry. Actually, I wouldn't say that. The Supreme Court would say that. I would say, and you would say, water is wet. But you see, there could be, that could be offensive. That could hurt someone's feelings, perhaps. And so a lawsuit, and da-da-da, it works its way up the court, and then you could get a unanimous decision or a split decision in the Supreme Court, and they could say, water is dry. Well, you can say, all day long, water is dry, but water is not dry. Water is wet. And a vote of a bunch of attorneys doesn't change that, you see. But that's where we are as a culture. So you have Facebook. And I don't have the exact number in my head, but I know that there are over on Facebook, you have over 50 different choices when it comes to marking your gender. Okay? An ancient boundary has been removed. So that's the first boundary that has, that has been set by God that in our day and age has never been challenged as it's being challenged now. Your kids are dealing with this. They're going to deal with it in schools. Even if they're in Christian schools, they'll have friends. And this is going to be an issue in their lives. Huge issue. Yeah. Now, why am I talking about it in the men's Bible study? Because we're men. Because God has called us as men to lead our families, to lead the church. Um, we have a role of, uh, of pastoring our homes, of overseeing our families, of being connected, of teaching. You say, I'm not a pastor. Yeah, you are. You're the family pastor. And you see... Someone has got to teach. Someone has got to instruct. Someone has got to give wisdom in the midst of um, foolishness. And uh, that falls on you and it falls on me as Christian men. You say, well, I'm a young guy. I'm not married yet. Yeah, but you've got people in your family. You probably have little, little cousins that look up to you. 
You teach them by how you live. We teach by what we say and we teach by how we live. Okay, so the first boundary that's under attack and it's being moved is the boundary of gender. And you will deal with this. Here is the next boundary, uh, Genesis 2. I want you to look at verse 24, if you would, please, with me. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Uh, this is the boundary of marriage. Marriage is to be permanent. Between a man and a woman, period. Nothing else qualifies as marriage. And again, this discussion 10 years ago really would not have come up. But all of a sudden, it's come out of nowhere like a freight train. And it's huge. All right? Now, I'd like you to flip over to Matthew 19. Because in Matthew 19, the Pharisees, familiar with the Pharisees, the religious bureaucrats, who hated Jesus... Uh, they were always trying to trip him up. And they just kept trying, but they just never, they just, they just never did it because he was God in the flesh. Um, but they kept trying. And in Matthew 19, verse 3, some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Now watch what Jesus does. Verse 4, and he answered them, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? The first thing he does in answering their contemporary question about divorce is that he goes back to Genesis, to the creation ordinances of God, and he goes back to gender. <coughs> Have you not read? that he created them male and female. Now watch what he does next. Verse 5. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now he's back in Genesis 2.24. The two boundaries that we just looked at when they tried to trip up Jesus on marriage, he takes them back to the ancient boundaries that were put in place by Almighty God, by him. Jesus put those in place. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit put them in place. That's why you got in Genesis, let us create man in our own image. So Jesus was there. These are his principles. But he takes them back to the ancient boundaries. Um, these are such fundamental, fundamental truths that they have gone virtually unchallenged basically in all of history until now. Been exceptions here and there, small ones. But now we're up against something that the world, quite frankly, uh, has never seen. And once again, I would say this. The fundamental issue in all of these discussions and attacks on gender and on marriage goes back to the whole question of authority and the authority of God and the authority of his word. 
Don't, don't miss that. It's not, this isn't political stuff. This is rebellion to Almighty God. We, we should turn to Romans 1. Let's do that. Just, just quickly, because this, uh, Romans 1 is really the, uh, the diagnosis of what's happening. Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. The picture is of putting truth in a box and sitting on it. Yet the problem is truth keeps trying to come out and you're sitting on the box holding it down and, you, and, it's, and, you, and it's this, it's, it's this picture. Because the truth is everywhere. But you're trying to suppress it and keep it down. And keep it out of mind. This is why the wrath of God has been revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because, watch this, that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Years ago, I heard a uh, child development expert from University of Southern California, heard her give her a lecture at a Christian seminary. She was an atheist, said she was an atheist. They brought her in because she had, you know, she knew a lot about kids. And, um, but one of the things she said, and I appreciated honesty, in all of her years of experience working with young children, she said, I've never met a child under the age of seven who doesn't believe in God. Why is that? Uh, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them, and they haven't gotten hardened enough yet to suppress it, you see. So every human being knows that God exists. It's in his heart. God wrote it on your heart. It's in there. Now, here's the second way we know that God exists. Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature... You ever watch uh, the National Geographic Channel? You ever, watch, uh, a, a, you ever watch a series on dolphins or on whales or on penguins in the winter who make that trek and then come back and feed their kids and all that stuff? I mean, you just go, this is unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Or about the migration of the, of the animals in Africa, all this amazing stuff. And then, uh, uh, do you ever hear a word about the living God? No. You know why? Because they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They just marvel. They just marvel. The symmetry, the structure, the engineering. Why don't you just give him glory? Why don't you just bow the knee? Oh, no, we can't do that. Because, you see, then we'd be under his authority. Since creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Clearly. Being understood through what has been made. What's been made? Everything around you. The trees, the bark, the birds, the acorns, the earthworms under your feet. It's been made by Almighty God. He spoke it into existence. 
so that they are without excuse. Even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. So when you see these shows, and they're wonderful programs, when you see what God has done, just say, thank you, Lord. This is amazing. When you get to take a trip to the mountains, just say, gosh, Lord, thank you. When you look at the stars at night, he's named every one of them. Yeah. He spoke them into existence. But you see, they suppress the truth. This is what we're dealing with right now. This is what's going on. This is what's in the courts. So why am I hitting this so hard tonight? Gender and marriage. In 1 Chronicles 12.32... You have a listing of the men who joined David, uh, men from the different tribes of Israel. It's just a listing of the different tribes and what they brought to the table. If you look at uh, the sons of Benjamin, they were, they were gifted warriors with, uh, with the left and the right hand. You know, some guys are good athletes. Some guys are good basketball players, but they can only dribble with their natural hand. And if you're playing basketball and you're defending a guy, you can figure out in about 90 seconds if he can go left. See, most right-handers can only go right. And they're kind of, they're you know, they're about second grade with their left hand. But if a guy's really good, he can go right and he can go left, and there's just no, it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter because he's worked on both. The sons of Benjamin were gifted, it says in First Chronicles 12, with the sling and with the arrow, uh, with a bow. Uh, and they could use either hand. So if they got wounded in this hand, it didn't make a difference because they, they were just as good with the other hand. So you got these guys described in First Chronicles 12, and then you get to verse 32, and it says, and the men of Issachar, the tribe of Issachar, watch this. And then talk about, you know, the sling or the arrow or this or that. It talk, and the men of Issachar were men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. They had two things they brought to the table. Number one, they brought discernment. They understood the times. They looked around and they knew what was going on because they looked at life through the lens of the word of God. They didn't see it. They saw it through the, through the lens of God's perspective because they were men of the word. They understood the times. They didn't fear the times. They didn't panic in the times. They understood them. That's discernment. Secondly, they knew what Israel should do. That's leadership. So how do I walk through this? How do I handle this? How do I handle this issue? That's leadership. Or do I, well, I don't know how to do this. These issues are beyond me. If any of you lack wisdom, James 1, let him ask of God who gives to all men liberally without reproach. I, I, I've been interacting with some folks in, in a very, very difficult situation. And um, I'll just say that. And... There has been some. There has been uh, some counseling, but my question to them was, who is doing the counseling? What are their qualifications? Now, I don't care if they got a PhD from somewhere, because all that means is they read a bunch of books, and were probably influenced by people who don't know the living God, like Rousseau, 
Rousseau was the great, in France, the great man who wrote about how to raise children. And people followed him during the French Revolution. But Rousseau was the one that every time he had a child, he would take it down to the orphanage and drop it off. Read Paul Johnson's book on intellectuals about what they taught, the great intellectuals that the world, you know, speaks of so highly. Uh, what Paul Johnson talks about is what they said and how they lived. And you got this gap that makes the Grand Canyon look like a little kid's swimming pool. So talking with these individuals, now there are good counselors and there are not so good counselors and there are horrible counselors. What does this person believe? What's their value system? Do they know Christ? See, what's going on here, and what's going on here is so sensitive, and it goes so deep. This is a family issue. This is a family issue. You have a family that knows Christ and knows the living God. You have an extended family. There's been some deep wounds here. And I talked with two other people, and we all had the same opinion, biblically. This is a family issue. This is how this will be healed. Peter Blitchington, in his book, Sex Roles and the Christian Family. And I'm pausing for a minute here. Um, I was talking about the men of Issachar, understood the times and knew what Israel should do. Uh, thank God for good biblical counselors. They're out there. But make sure they're biblical. Well, how do I know they're biblical? Talk to someone who knows them. Vet them. Check them out. This is a wonderful book. It's hard to find, Sex Roles in the Christian Family. On the cover of this, it was written in 84 by Peter Blitchington. On the cover of it is an endorsement by James Dobson, and it says, never before have I volunteered a statement of endorsement for a book. Now, Dobson would get hit every day for, for an endorsement on a book. Never before have I volunteered a statement of endorsement for a book, but this one deserves that distinction. These issues are crucial to the survival of the family, and I wish every Christian in America would read it. Sex Roles and the Christian Family. Sadly, this book is hard to find. It's a classic. It's brilliant. I'll just read you. I've been rereading it this week. The strength of a nation can be fairly effectively gauged by the strength of its families. And the strength of a family can be estimated by the quality of its sexual roles. Our culture mocks that. The major, family, the major problem we face today is family disruption. It is the same problem for all great civilizations that all great civilizations have faced during their final years. Divorce, abortion, feminism, declining birth rates, rampant perversions, and burgeoning juvenile delinquency are not new. Both Greece and Rome witnessed exactly the same family disruptions that we are experiencing today. Now, he wrote this in 84, 84, the good old days. These, once, uh, these two once powerful nations gained their strength from a sturdy family system. As long as they adhered to that system, both nations were strong. But when that family system was broken, broken also were the spirit and strength of the nation. There is a specific pattern of family relationship that works the best. 
This pattern consists of men and women acting out certain roles. It is the pattern that both Greece and Rome followed when they were at the height of their power, but it's even older than these two nations, for it was instituted at the creation. It is the biblical blueprint for marriage. If followed, it would ensure stable families and a strong, productive nation. This book could be subtitled The Science of the Family, for in it I've attempted to show that the research conducted by a behavioral scientist on the family consistently points towards the wisdom of God's original blueprint. And then he goes on and he talks about the family under attack and that we've departed from the biblical uh, blueprint. And he speaks of a, of a gentleman who was raised in a Christian home Christian influence, but he departed, was influenced by the teaching that he received at uh, Cambridge. I'll just pick it up here. Uh, David R. Mace, for example, talks about what happened to him after the year 1930 when he left Cambridge University and went to live in a London slum during the Depression. He served as a Methodist minister and saw such adversity and depravity that he soon called into question all of his old beliefs from the scriptures. He began asking himself, what really is at the core of life? He relates his experiences watching people starve to death, watching sex, savagery, and sin in their crudest forms. He describes not knowing what to do the first time he was confronted by a homosexual who confided in him and asked him for counseling. Based upon all, he, he got confused. He just got confused because he had been raised in the scriptures but started listening to all of this other stuff. Based upon all of these experiences, he concludes, I turned to psychology and read avidly, but the subject proved to be immense. I strove to isolate some one key concept that would get me to the central source of all this human misery. My quest soon led me to family life. I saw that it is in the family that we learn to love and be loved, and thus to be friendly and cooperative, or learn to hate and exploit others, and thus to be aggressive and acquisitive. I saw also very clearly that at the core of the family was the marriage relationship, and that the success or failure of the family finally depends on the success or failure of the marriage. Marriage, I became convinced, was the key I had sought. Now, let's talk about marriage for a minute. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You see? Okay. Now, Jesus in Matthew 19 went on and talked about marriage and said, and divorce, and said, there's to be no divorce among you except for the cause of pornea, fornication, adultery, when one breaks the sexual union and is one with someone else. Now, that doesn't mean that there is that divorce has to take place, but it is grounds for divorce. The hope would be is that there could be reconciliation and forgiveness and that could be healed. But sometimes it is, um, there's a pattern that will not be broken and there will not be submission to Christ and it is just time and time and time and time again. There are grounds for divorce and then you would have 1 Corinthians 7 where the abandonment of a spouse those seem to be the two grounds in Scripture, you see? But what is marriage? What, what is he going back to? The family. This is what I was saying in this, in this situation with these folks who are so puzzled. 
What's going on here, you've got a godly family based on the word of God. You've got an extensive family network. That's your healing spot. Don't go out looking at the ways of the world. This can be healed through godly relationships under the authority of God's word. Don't forget that. Thank God for good counselors, but make sure they're wise counselors with the word of God. Proverbs 13, who walks with wise men will be wise. If they're not wise in the things of God, don't listen to them. We're living in insane times. Turn with me to Ecclesiastes, if you would. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 3. Ecclesiastes 9.3, there is an evil, Solomon writes, and all that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for all men, which is death. Furthermore, the hearts of all the sons of men are full of evil, and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Afterwards, they go to the dead. Now, we studied Ecclesiastes, what, a year or so ago? Uh, he, he's talking about our, our condition without Christ, men who live under the sun, who don't acknowledge the God that is over the sun. And those who don't acknowledge the God who is over the sun and who has authority over their lives, what's in their hearts? Their hearts are full of evil, and insanity is in their hearts through all, all their lives. Insanity in the sense that they don't think rationally. By the way, if you go back to Romans 1, when you continue to reject God and the truth of God, there is a point where God will give them over to a reprobate mind. You know what a reprobate mind means? It's an irrational, unthinking verging on insanity mind. And we look around today and we see courts and we see decisions and politicians and we see education leaders talking about, and we go, this is insane. And it is. It's absolutely insane. A couple of... Uh, couple of illustrations. Uh, I mentioned World Magazine before. You got to get a subscription. Best news magazine out there. Uh, evangelical believers who are excellent journalists, you can trust them. There's no fake news. These guys are good. Article uh, recently, uh, March 31st, sacrificing children on the ideological altar. Last week, a by Nick uh, uh, Iker. Last week, a judge granted three-way custody of a child to a thruple. Well, a thruple. What's with you guys? Hey, man, you got to get with it. A thruple. T h r o u p l e. A thruple. What would a thruple be? You know what it is. The new term for a romantic relationship between three people. He granted custody. In this case, two members of the one-man, two-woman group were the child's biological parents, and one was not. This is a judge. No doubt with sterling credentials academically. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. 
Slate Magazine uh, could be called Insane Magazine, if you're not familiar with it. But Slate Magazine called the judge's custody ruling in the case a necessary next step in a vision of parenthood and child rearing that, watch this, extends beyond the boundaries of monogamous marriage. Can I translate that for you? <laughs> It violates Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.24, which God ordained. It's absolute rebellion to the living God. John Stone Street, who, along with Eric McTaxis, took over Chuck Colson's Breakpoint ministry. John Stone Street called it something different, a social experiment on children. Stone Street has a, had a dire warning for the culture, which he said was sacrificing the well-being of children for the fulfillment of its narcissism and sexual desire. Future generations will look at us similarly to the way ancient religions sacrifice children. We might not be doing it on actual altars, but we are doing it on ideological altars, and it's disgusting. And it is. It is. World, World Magazine, just World Magazine, just, just Google it, Bing it, it'll come up, yeah. Um, Joe Carter uh, writes for the Gospel Coalition, he's an excellent researcher. Uh, back in 2014, uh, he did an article, Nine Things You Should Know About Transgenderism. And I'm not going to read all nine things. I'll read a couple. Number one, he says, transgenderism is an umbrella term for the state or condition of identifying or expressing a gender identity that does not match a person's physical slash genetic sex. Transgender is independent of sexual orientation and those who self-identify as transgender may consider themselves to be heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual, pansexual, polysexual, or asexual. Approximately 700,000 individuals in the U.S. identify as transgender. Now, there are 309 million Americans. 700,000 identify as transgender. You would think it was 700 million, but it's 700,000, which is less, what? One-third of one percent. I love the math majors. <laughs> Thank you, because I can't do that in my head. One-third of one percent. By the way, did you get all those categories? What's with you guys? Um, give me a second, because I thought I highlighted this. Oh, here it is. The LGBTQIA community. I remember LSMFT. Do you remember that? Lucky strike means fine tobacco. I remember that when I was six years old. It, it was imprinted in my brain. The power of advertising. Okay. Uh, the homosexual community considers gender to be a trait that exists along a continuum. Transgenders can thus be bigender, 
which means moving between feminine and masculine gender type behavior depending on context, trigender, shifting between male, female, and a third gender, pangender, all genders at once, gender queer, which is a catch-all for people who consider themselves any of the subsets of transgender, such as genderless, pangender, etc. Now, I want to say this to you. This is going to come up in your life. Oh, it is. It's going to come up somewhere, somehow, sometime. And you're going to have to address it. I, I don't know to what degree or what the... But I mean this because our children are being indoctrinated with this. And our grandchildren. By the way, the term cisgender, C-I-S, no one on me, is used to refer to individuals who have a match between the gender they were assigned at birth, their bodies, and their personal identity. I'm cisgender. Okay. Uh, here's another point. When children, now this is important and this is serious. And yeah, listen, there are guys in this room who are dealing with this in their families. And, it's, and it'll break your heart. I've told you about my friend Walt Heyer, who's 75 years old. By the way, if you go to World Magazine's website and you get on the cover, the whatever you call that, webpage, the first thing, you'll see Walt's story. You've got to read it. Because Walt was a brilliant guy, brilliant guy, who uh, is a brilliant guy. But uh, abusive father, mother, grandmother, who loved to dress him and dress him as little girl's clothing, kind of wished he was a girl. Really messed him up. Very successful guy. Got married, kids, the whole thing. Very successful, extremely successful in business. Walked away from it. Uh, got into the whole transgender thing. Was one of the first guys to have the surgery. Uh, and then the Lord got a hold of him. And uh, wound up going to my brother's church in California. Walked in as a woman. Felt safe enough a couple years later to say, hey, here's my story. And was embraced and remarkable change in his life. Uh, he has a ministry that's remarkable now. Absolutely remarkable. Walt Heyer. Um, from, from, I'm still on uh, Joe Carter. And by the way, don't forget. You say, I thought I was doing a Bible study here. I thought it was a Bible study, Steve. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 127, okay? We're just looking how the culture, how far they've gone. Every man does what's right in his own eyes. But see, we get all this false information. But uh, Carter says, when children who reported transgender feelings were tra tracked without medical or surgical treatment at both Vanderbilt University and London's Portman Clinic, 70, 80% of them spontaneously lost those feelings. Did you catch that? They dealt with it for a while, and then it went away. It went away. Some 25% did have persistent feelings. Despite such study, studies, several states, including California, New Jersey, and Massachusetts, have passed laws barring psychiatrists, even with parental permission, from striving to restore natural gender feelings to a transgendered minor. It's against the law. And the Obama administration back in, that's in another one, I think a couple years ago, 
basically mandated even if physicians felt like this violated their conscience, you had to go ahead and do it. Yeah, and you can leave that in. A study, uh, a 2011 study at the Karolininski Institute in Sweden followed 324 people who had sex reassignment surgery from 1973 to 2003. The overall rate of death was higher than expected, with suicide being the leading cause. This is what Walt Heyer deals with. He's on the phone every day, emailing back and forth, because see, this is the story is not being told, is the suicide rate among those that are in this movement is unbelievably high. Those who had the sex change surgery were almost 20 times more likely to take their own lives than the non-transgender population. You don't get that in the media. Another article in World, Suffer the Children, talks about a young woman named Carrie Stella. Uh, she's done a series of YouTube videos. As a teenage girl, Stella felt the strong desire to live as a man. A therapist obliged. After three or four visits over a three-month period and without suggesting other options, the therapist prescribed testosterone. She was 17. A few years later, she underwent a double mastectomy. A 20-year-old girl, okay? Stella says her family was supportive and her workplace included transgender uh, leadership. Her transition seemed like a success, only it wasn't. Soon she felt worse, not better. Uh, the testosterone began to make her feel disassociated than when she started. Um, it's hard to figure out that the treatment you're being told is to help you is actually making your mental health worse. After three years of hormones, Stella stopped taking testosterone and transitioned, detransitioned to living as a woman, went back to living as a woman. She's still grappling with the effects of her ordeal. I'm a real-life 22-year-old woman. Now watch, this is heartbreaking, with a scarred chest and a broken voice and a five o'clock shadow because I couldn't face the idea of growing up to be a woman. Then I realized I could not continue running from myself. She's not a conservative, she's in a lesbian relationship, but you see her moving towards truth. Stella's message isn't popular. What message? Well, here's her message. She's told her YouTube viewers she's frustrated at how easy it is for conflicted minors, now catch this, conflicted minors to obtain hormones to change their bodies. How many other medical conditions are there where you can walk into the doctor's office, tell them you have a certain condition which has no objective test, which can be caused by trauma or mental health issues or societal factors, and receive life-altering medications on your say-so? Uh -huh. That's where we are. Why? Why are we there? Because we've departed, we've moved the ancient boundaries. This is the culture, and once again, I would suggest, guys, we're gonna deal with this in some way, shape, or form as leaders of our homes and our extended families. Tim Keller did a talk this week at a conference. Rick sent the email to me and basically pointed out, and I appreciated it, that Keller made three observations about our culture and about the young in our culture. They've been catechized. 
uh, they have been, uh, if, you, if you grew up Presbyterian, you had the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Uh, it, it questions what's the chief end of man to know and glorify God forever, and then the scriptures are given. My, my wife grew up Presbyterian. She's got that in her head. It's a wonderful thing. It's how you teach scripture. Lutherans do the same thing. Keller said there's a cultural catechism, and young people have been taught three things. Number one, you've got to be true to yourself. Number two, in the end, you have to do what makes you happy. Number three, no one has the right to tell anyone else what is right and wrong. That's an issue of authority. Yeah. Ryan Anderson, in his article on the Orbergfell versus Hodges, the same-sex marriage Supreme Court rendering, majority opinion written by Kennedy, first paragraph, the Constitution promises liberty to all within its reach, a liberty that includes certain specific rights that allows person with persons within a lawful realm, now watch this, to define and express their identity. To define their identity. I didn't see that in the Constitution. But then again, they see all kinds of things that aren't in the Constitution. Why is that? Because they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And see, that's where we are. And the whole basis of that decision that was rendered on same-sex marriage, which attacked, which attacked Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, it moved the ancient boundary, and there was absolutely no rational reason behind it, not one. And this guy, Ryan Anderson, who's brilliant, absolutely takes it apart. Now, aren't you glad you came tonight? So there's the problem. The men of this car understood the times. So we've taken some time to understand the times. Now, but the men of this car knew what Israel should do. That's why God has worked in your life. That's why God has called you to himself. That's why, uh, that's why he has uh, given you a new heart in Christ. And... Uh, and old things have passed away and all things have become new. And that's why you have a Bible and you come to Bible study and you read the scriptures and you seek God's wisdom. And, and, and see, that's not just so you can have Bible knowledge. It's so that you can be uh, a man of God and touch others and do the work of ministry. Would you turn me to Titus 2.2, please? Titus 2.2. Uh, we have some young guys in here. Most of the guys in here are over 40. That means you're half dead. <laughs> Just thought I'd share that with you. Uh, what it means is, if you're over 40, you're an older man. Now, you can be 25 and be an older man, again, if you're hanging around with your 15-year-old cousins. You see? But... You're an older man. Uh, when you're raising kids, you might be in your 20s and 30s. My grandkids come over, and I look at my 
two sons and my daughter raising their kids, and I don't know how I did it, because I'm exhausted just watching them. Yeah, it's, uh, raising children is not for 60-year-olds and 70-year-olds. You don't have the juice, you see? But you see, the older are teaching the younger. Titus 2.2, 2. This, this is what we do about all this, guys. This is what we do, and, and this is our calling, and this is our responsibility. Uh, Titus 2.2. 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. I want to work through these traits because, you see, we talked about the importance of a family. Um, in my life now, I am the oldest man in my extended family. My, my dad used to be the tribal chief, but he's with the Lord. And now I look around, and uh, I'm the old guy, you see? But I learned some things from my dad. And, uh, and then one day I'm going to be out of here, and it's going to be passed on. We play a key role. Older men play a key role. Older men are to be sober-minded. In a world that's gone insane, we're to be sober-minded. So let's, let's break this down. Some, some translations would say temperate. Uh, to be temperate or to be sober-minded simply means, uh, really at its basis form, is to be moderate in drinking of alcohol. But it goes beyond that. It means to be free from any kind of spiritual or mental drunkenness. You can be drunk on power. You can be drunk on control. You can be drunk on this. You can be drunk on that. We started with Ephesians 5.15, which says, be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. And the next verse says, and don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, be controlled by the Spirit of God. So I'm not to be controlled by anything. Alcohol you're controlled by the alcohol. That's what makes you drunk. If you're controlled with this or this or this. But you see, a man who's following Christ is to be sober-minded because he's controlled by Christ. Colossians 3, 16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. That's the companion passage to 518, be filled with the Spirit. When I'm filled with the Spirit, the word of Christ is richly dwelling within me. You see? So, what that means is there's no excess, there's no confusion, you're not out of your mind, but you've got the mind of Christ. And you say, Steve, situations are going to come up. I was asked this this week, I, we need this counselor because I'm being asked questions and I don't have an answer. It shall be given to you in that hour what you will speak. Ask him for his wisdom. You, you'll be asked questions, how, how am I, I going to answer some of this stuff? I don't know. But he'll give you wisdom. Back again to James 1, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men liberally and without reproach. And sometimes you just say, I don't know the answer to that. But let Christ lead you. Let the living God show you how to do this. He can bring to your mind a scripture you haven't thought of in 30 years. 
Can he not? Like apples of gold and settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. He can do that, and he will do it. Sober-minded. Older men are to be dignified. That means worthy of respect, honor. To be uh, worthy of respect. I used to coach a little, little league team with a guy, and this guy, the first thing he ever said to these boys is, he got up and he said, I demand respect. I thought, you just lost it, man. You just flat out lost it. That's not what you say. You don't get up there and say you demand respect. You get up there and you do what you're supposed to do and you earn respect. He had it all wrong. You don't demand it, you earn it by the power of your life. Oh, Steve, I've screwed up, I missed up. Join the club, we all have. But now you're walking with the living Christ. And you see, they know you're walking with him, and they don't, to respect you, they, you don't, they don't expect perfection, but they expect authenticity, and they expect honesty. And they expect a man who can say, I'm sorry when you're wrong, and you model the truth. Uh, to be dignified means worthy of respect, honor, serious. You're serious about life. You've got gravitas. Uh, You've got gravity to you. You're not some kid. You're not some... I remember that one time in that Albertsons parking lot, that guy walking out of the Albertsons, and he was about 65, 68, and he was trying to look like he was 15. He had his cutoffs, he had his flip-flops, he was chewing his gum, he had his hat on backwards, and he's walking, he gets in his car, and he peels out of the parking lot. I thought, what a punk. The guy's 68, what is he? How old is that guy? Gosh. What a train wreck. You, you think his grandkids go to him for counsel? Are you kidding? There's no gravitas. It doesn't mean you're serious all the time, but it means when the serious of issues of life, they come to you because they respect you and your thinking and your walk and your wisdom. Self-controlled. I looked this up in the Greek. It means self-controlled. <laughs> it means avoidance of extremes. Hey, when we're young, we go to extremes. But as we get miles on our tires, we moderate. And through experience and through bad decisions and bad moves and making dumb mistakes, you know what happens? We moderate and we begin to get self-controlled under the Spirit of God. You see? But these are in the present tense. Present tense. We've all screwed up in these areas. But this is what happened when, when Christ gets a hold of us. Sound. It says sound. Sound means to be healthy or free from sickness. Uh, the application here, and I appreciate Denny Burke, his article on this, where it's when you're sound, see, what does it say? It says sound in faith. Faith in Scripture. You're, you're, sound, uh, you're sound in your, in your biblical knowledge. You're free from error. Uh, you're, you're sound in your, what else does it say? In love. In love. You're, you're, as you get older, you're learning to be more loving. You see? You're learning to be kinder. And if you've hurt folks, 
as best you can, you go back and make amends and apologize and try to make it right. See, you're sound in love. You're sound in your relationships. If you, if you hurt them, you go tell them you've hurt them and you don't make excuses. And you ask forgiveness. And see, they're safe when they come to you and ask forgiveness because you, see, you've been forgiven by Christ. Why would you not forgive? And in steadfastness, you're stable, you're steady. In a world that's crazy, in a world that's insane, they're hearing this, they're being told this. They got feelings, they don't even know what the feelings are. And you see, they need someone who is stable and steady and secure and trustworthy. That's you. That's you. That's your job. William Busey, in his excellent book titled Boys, that's the title, uses an illustration of what it's like to father boys. Boys are crazy. Boys have massive amounts of testosterone. They're all over the map. Uh, you were a boy. You did crazy things. I did crazy things. It's amazing we've lived this long. But William Busey talks about boys, and uh, he uses the illustration. I think he said, you know, 3 a.m. one night he couldn't sleep. He's watching ESPN. And what's on ESPN? This was 20 years ago. What was on ESPN? It just come out. They didn't have enough shows to fill it. He had a water skiing show from Cypress Gardens, Florida. These trick water skier guys. And he's watching these guys. And these guys are the greatest water skiers in the world. And what are they doing? They're doing rooster tails. They're doing slalom. They're going off ramps. They're doing backflips. They're, they're, they're flipping cheeseburgers. They're do, I mean, they're just unbelievable. They're backward, forward. I mean, it's just unbelievable. And then they go down and they come back and they do it. He goes, that's raising boys. Those boys are all over. They're going off ramps. They're doing this. They're doing backflips. Whatever their friends say, oh, yeah, let's do that. And then he pointed this out. The guys going off the ramp and doing the and jumps and backflips and all that, they're not by themselves. They're connected to something. They're connected to a boat. And there's a man driving the boat. And he said, what was fascinating to me is that I watched them going crazy on the ramps and rooster tailing and going along this, left, hot, I started watching the guy in the boat. You know what the guy in the boat did? He just went straight. <laughs> he turned around. <laughs> same speed, same rate, never deviated, never moved. And they're up behind him going. He said, that's a father raising boys. You pull them through the insanity by the power of your stable, straight life in following Christ. Your Christian grandpa, that's you. Your Christian father, that's you. You just pull them through the insanity as you follow Christ. Paul said, you follow me as I follow Christ. And when they're over here in this extreme and all that, 
you love them and you talk to them and you get inside their heart and you listen and you pray for them and you don't stop praying for them. The most powerful weapon in the world is prayer. They don't have a chance. He got you back in. Why can't he bring them back in? Let's pray. Thank you, Father. You give us hope in these insane times. Thank you for the counsel of your word. Now, Lord, we want to say this. There are people who have been, like my friend Walt, who was deceived by the enemy. His life was broken. This young woman, we read her story tonight, this, this Stella. There's so many others, Lord, who have been broken, who have been wounded, who deeply need to know their creator and his son, Jesus Christ. Pull them in by your Holy Spirit. Redeem them by the blood of the Lamb. Save them. Restore them. For those who have been deceived by Satan, Peter was, Peter was deceived by Satan. And Jesus said, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith might remain and that when you return, you will strengthen your brothers. That's a prayer. We pray for those who have wandered off course. Bring them back in and use them for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.